you know, in more formal circles, when a Bible reading is finished and the reader says at the end, this is the word of God, the appropriate response is to say, thanks be to God. Um, I'm not saying you should do that now, but just in case you ever find yourself in a stuffy Anglican church somewhere, where you don't look silly, but it's also a great opportunity to remember that it does come from our Lord and we can only render thanks to Him for giving us something that we didn't deserve, but so sorely needed. Uh, and that's why we look at the Bible so often at EOC, because it is the lifeline for us, without which we would have no hope. And today is about that hope, so how about I pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it the gospel is proclaimed, and by it we are saved. I pray now today that you'll give us attentive hearts and minds uh, to hear of the assurance you offer us in the gospel, and so place our hope fully in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, um, I don't know uh, what your life has been like. Um, all of us are very young. I'm 30. I'm probably the oldest in the room, unless somebody's doing some sort of sneaky. I mean, the beards might suggest that you guys are a bit older. I'm still trying to figure out how to grow facial hair. Um, I've only been, only been around for 30 years, and I feel like I have suffered quite a bit. Not in the conventional sense. I've had many family members die. I've had a functional family. I've had great schooling. I've never needed money. Uh, I think where I've suffered is emotionally, uh, particularly growing up through high school, um, the loneliness, uh, the, the struggles with friendships. You get to university and the struggles with your aspirations and dreams as things kind of come crashing down. You struggle with mental health and those sorts of things. Um, it's hard. Uh, particularly as a Christian, because as a Christian you are called to push through not just the things that happen to you circumstantially, but the spiritual things as well, like your wrestle with sin that you just can't seem to throw. Uh, and there's this reality that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you'll know that persevering as a Christian is actually really hard. Uh, how do you hold on to that, that distant hope that's all the way out there when your more immediate experience just screams to you to give up. We all love the idea, I think, of having that super fit bod one day, you know, tanned and toned, and that mental image that we have sits there and it's brilliant until the very first push-up, and then we're all just like, oh yeah, okay, I'm done, I need a donut. Right? So what's actually going to hold out the hope for us in Christ? How are we going to hold out for it and endure the suffering that gets us through to glory? What we need is a guarantee, and that's where chapter 8 of Romans comes in. Because Romans 8 is all about the assurance that the Christian has. It begins with a great declaration there in verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It ends with a similarly great declaration, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And bookended by both those two statements, we find a third right in the centre of our passage in verse 18. And, it Paul, and you know, Paul basically says, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. And that's what the assurance of the gospel does. It holds us in the past and in the future and allows us to move through the present suffering till we land in glory to our guaranteed future. And so today, today is a very big passage. People have written books on this chapter. People have written books on single verses in this chapter. And so today is going to be dense. But what I hope it will do for you is show you that those who are in Christ Jesus, 
can be assured of their final end. Now, we're doing the whole chapter. It's massive. The reason we're doing it is because I wanted to get to chapters 9, 10, and 11 after the mid-sem break. And so today is where we suffer for that choice, okay? Because I want to get to God's sovereignty, but today we just got to do the hard yards. Now, what we're going to tackle this passage is by asking a single question. How do we persevere through present suffering to get to future glory? How do we persevere through present suffering to get to future glory? And Paul, I think, tells us three ways to do that, three things that we must do. First, we must walk in the Spirit. Second, we must wait for our hope. And then third, we must stand assured in our victory. We're going to look at each one of those things in turn. So first, we walk in the Spirit, verses 1 to 17. Now, when you hear walk in the Spirit, I don't know what you think, but you're probably tempted to think some sort of super mystical thing, right? Like some sort of meditation or that transcendent and kind of like otherworldliness where you kind of can detach yourself from the world around you and that way you can deal with suffering because it's not really affecting you anymore. But that's not what God thinks when He thinks walking in the Spirit. That's not His understanding of spirituality and it's certainly not His understanding of how you triumph over suffering. Uh, one of the things you'll notice as you hit chapter 8 in Romans is just how many times the Spirit is mentioned. Up until this point, first seven chapters of Romans, four mentions. In the next 26 verses of chapter 8, you've got 18. So in 10% of the space, you've got five times the amount of spirit mention. And the reason for that is because this is the chapter where Paul gets to describing the Christian life. And it is the spirit who both begins and sustains the Christian life. Have a look there at verse 2. We see that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, what was the purpose of that release? Well, if you remember from last week and flick back to chapter 7, verse 6, you see it. We have been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we would serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, in other words, the Christian life is a spiritual life. It is of the Spirit. And as such, if we are of the Spirit, then we walk in the Spirit. But what spirit walking looks like is not like your stereotypes from Eastern religions. No one's walking on clouds. No one's humming on a mountain. It's not peaceful. It's actually really, really violent. And that's the teaser. We'll get to why in a second. But to get to that point, we need to first understand uh, how we have come to be in the spirit. And to understand that, we then need to first understand what it is that God has done. So let's have a look. Let's have a read at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, I reckon these are some of the most dense verses in Romans. Uh, so I want to try and simplify things for you. Notice the comparison at the very end of these verses in verse 4. On the one hand, we have a life that is lived according to the flesh. And then on the other hand, a life that is lived according to the Spirit. And the essential point here is that God has done something. God has moved us from the realm of the flesh and into the realm of the Spirit. And the way that he affects that transition is to do what the law, in verse 3 there, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
So what couldn't the law do? Well, it couldn't make us righteous. In theory, it could have. It was the pathway to pleasing God. But we see there that the law was weakened by our flesh. Now, you've got to remember, we were born in Adam. We are fleshly. Sin dwells within us. And so when we try to do the law, sin rises up and it stops us from doing the very thing that we know that we should be doing. So what does God do? Well, he does what the law couldn't do. And he enables us to be righteous. What he does is he sends his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And don't miss that. It's the likeness. He doesn't come sinful, but he is in the flesh. He's like Adam. He's like us. He's fleshy. And what God does is he takes our sin and he puts that sin on Jesus in the flesh and he condemns that sin in the flesh. And in doing so, what it now means for us is that there is now nothing left in us to be condemned. It's done. And so now there's no condemnation for those who have become Christians because we've been set free from sin and death by the spirit of life. In effect, we are under new management. I don't know if any of you guys have worked in retail. What happens when you're under new management? Well, in theory, the service gets better. That's why people put the signs up in the stores, right, under new management. Because what they're trying to tell you is that, you know, that experience that you had that really sucked? If you come back, you won't have that anymore. The old regime was rubbish, but we've improved things. So what they're announcing is your old experience, don't expect it. You're going to get something better. And that is what God is doing for us. Through Jesus, he is changing the management. He has changed it, in fact, if you're a Christian. Such that, from this point on in verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that's interesting. Does that mean that we now earn our righteous status before God? Well, no. No, that can't be the case, because we already know from verse 1 that God has already declared us not condemned. It's past tense. And so this fulfillment must be something that plays out in our life. But the thing to get in all of this is that the declaration of righteousness and the fulfillment of righteousness, they're of a piece. Declaration and fulfillment, they cannot be separated. Such that when we are no longer condemned in Christ, that will inevitably lead to us living like Christ. And the reason for that is because of what God has done. And that fundamentally changes who we are. Who are we now? Well, Paul tells us by describing the difference between our former walk and our current walk. Now, I want you to miss this. This is a description in verses 5 and onwards. It's not an exhortation. He's not telling you what you need to try and do. He's actually describing who you already are. So what's the difference? Well, the difference in verse 5 there, have a look. It centers on our minds. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, just so we're clear, this is a far more expansive thing than just sinful thinking or spiritual thoughts, although that is a part of what Paul is talking about here. What he's actually talking about is a whole way of thinking about our world and our place in it. The mind of the flesh, well, it's intent upon itself. It's inward focus. It thinks nothing of God's displeasure at sin. In fact, what it does is it suppresses any personal acknowledgement of God. This is Romans 1. And the key point here is in verse 7, that sinful mind, the mind of the flesh, is hostile to God. It is hostile. Now, let's do some disambiguation here. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are openly hating God. It doesn't even necessarily mean atheism. Because you can believe in a God and yet still functionally live as though he didn't exist. You can believe in a God, the wrong God, 
and try to serve him, but in doing so, ignore the right God. Or you could believe in the right God, but think you have to serve him in a way that he doesn't want you to, and so you are practically, functionally, not living with the mind of the Spirit. Uh, a classic example of this, and it probably doesn't count for any of you really, because none of you are parents, is the teenager who lives in your house and eats your food and yet never talks to you. Maybe you're that teenager. Basically, you acknowledge the existence of your parents and the fact that they own the place, even their provision, but the way that you act, the way that you behave, it's not as if it was their house. You conduct yourselves in whatever way you want. And you don't have to be even rude or openly rebellious about it, but the thing to get is if you're not living, acknowledging properly your parents in that space, that's not neutral behaviour. That is wrong behaviour. I think the key word in all of this is at the end of verse 7 there. What does it say? The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and here's your key word, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See, the person who lives according to the flesh doesn't submit to God. In fact, they can't. It's just another way, really, of describing slavery to sin. And so while they might still be capable of doing some good things, maybe think some things that even align with God's law, the so-called religious people, ultimately, because they don't acknowledge their wretchedness, and they don't throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus, they are not submitting to God's law. No matter how many good things they do, verse 8, they cannot please God. Why? They don't have the mind of the Spirit. They have ignored God's provision of righteousness in Jesus. And the end of such hostility to God is, according to verse 6, death. That's the mind of the flesh. That's the formal walk. What about our current walk as Christians? Well, we live according to the Spirit. And we have minds, therefore, that are set on what the Spirit desires. And unlike those who are walking according to the flesh, the sinful nature, they are actually able to recognize their sinfulness and reject it. And instead what they do is they cling to Christ and devote themselves to a life that is pleasing to God, that fulfillment of the law. Now, in doing so, they show that they are not hostile to God or His law. In fact, as we saw in chapter 7, their minds are now at odds with their members such that they desire to do what is good, even if their flesh remains in rebellion. This is sort of like the teenager who lives at home and acknowledges that it's their parents' place, thanks their parents for the things that they do. At times they might coast on, God, on their parents' goodwill, but the reality is that they are living in light of truth. And so if your mind is governed by the Spirit, what do we see? It doesn't lead to death, verse 6, but again in that same verse, it leads to life and to peace. Now remember, these are two ways of living and they're a description. He's describing who we are if we are Christian now in the Spirit. And we see why in verse 9. He actually wants to assure his readers that they are of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Have a look at what he says. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you. He's not casting doubt there. He's just calling us to think about um, whether or not we have truly come to know the Lord. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So we are in the Spirit, not of the flesh. He also says it again a bit later in verse 14 using different words. He actually says that we are no longer slaves, but sons. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, ladies, don't be afraid of being called a son in this thing. This is not a chauvinistic text. Remember, in the old school days, the sons were the ones that inherited. And so this is probably the only time in your life where being called a man is a good thing. Uh, because what it means is that you are getting equal treatment to everybody else. To be called a son of God is the highest privilege you can receive. And so that's what we are called. But having been come in the spirit, we're no longer in the flesh, we're no longer slaves. In fact, we are now counted as sons of God. And this change in who we are, being in the spirit, it necessarily brings a change in how we are to walk. And it's in verse 12 that we begin to see a picture of what we now must do. So we are getting there. What does it look like to walk in the spirit? Um, Well, let's have a look. Verse 12. It's really violent. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you were to live truly as those who are in the Spirit, you must have a personal vendetta against sin. Call it a blood feud. You know mafia families, right? What happens when one member of the other mafia family steps on, on the turf of the other mafia family, right? It's bloody war at that point. And this is what the Christian life is. Whenever sin rears its ugly head, we pull out the baseball bats and the shotguns, and wherever we see it, we kill it. We are on vendetta against sin. And what Paul says is to live any other way is to live according to the flesh. In verse 13, he says, if you live like that, you will die. And he's not talking about physical death, he's talking about judgment. He's actually talking about the point where you face God on that final day. And if you haven't been putting sin to death, you have no reasonable expectation to not be found wanting. And I want you to feel the weight of this warning as you look at those verses there in verse 13. Because he is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians. And he says, if you are a Christian and you live your life in a way that gives free reign to sin, you can kiss your faith goodbye. And that's why our attitude to sin must be vicious. We give no quarter. Um, The 17th century Puritan John Owen actually wrote an entire book on this verse. That was one of the guys I mentioned earlier. And you want to know what the most famous line in his book was? Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It's a good life motto as it comes to walking in the Spirit. And so there is a necessary posture for those of us who would live according to the Spirit. And it's not like a peaceful meditation stance. It's actually a battle stance. It's ready to hit back and hit hard. Because if we're not fighting, then we're dying. That's how serious this command is. Now, I suspect for some of us, that probably feels quite insurmountable. Uh, Especially for those of us who can't seem to shake certain sins. We're talking about this in Bible study in the hour before. Sometimes it's just really discouraging. And it leads us to distrust whether God is for us if we just keep sinning and just keep returning to the same things without seeing any change. And so I want to encourage us by reminding us of a particular hope that this passage holds out for us. Because notice how we are to put sin to death. We do it, verse 13, by the Spirit. No tips, no tricks, just by the fact that the Spirit dwells within us, we are able to do it. Because He is within us, it is now not just possible, but expected that when we resist sin, we will succeed. May not happen overnight. 
Our sinful habits can be deeply entrenched. Some of us might need to revise our timetables from days to years. But our wrestle with sin, while we may be disappointed, will never give way to despair. And that's because we're told in verse 15, we didn't receive the kind of spirit that falls back into slavery. We actually received the spirit of sonship, which cries out to God as our Father, in complete expectation that so long as we are putting sin to death, our trajectory is life and future glory. So how do we persevere through suffering to glory? Well, first of all, we walk in the Spirit. We get that right. We behave as we have been made to be uh, as we wait. Which leads us, actually, to our second point, verses 18 to 30. How do we persevere through present suffering to future glory? Well, we wait for our hope. When we get to verse 18, Paul shifts focus from walking to waiting. And where before he focused on our God-given life, he now focuses on our hope. And my question for us is this, what is it that we hope for? And I'll throw a question up on the screen there for you. According to verses 18 to 25, what is it that the Christian hopes for? And I'll give you a moment together to discuss that now. what the Christian hopes for. Oh, I'll always ask Ben because his mouth is full. Does <laughs> <laughs> somebody want to love Ben and rescue him? Verse 21. Yeah, what'd you come up with? Uh, so I said, so that we'd be free from the bondage of corruption. Mm. It's actually two things, isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, I actually want to say that there's quite a number of phrases in these verses that would suggest hope. Uh, one of them is that freedom uh, from bondage, freedom of the glory, um, on and on it goes. But I think the key answer um, is right there at the end of verse 23. All of those different phrases are talking about the one thing, and that one thing is the redemption of our bodies. Now remember, as Christians, we are in the Spirit already, but our salvation is not yet complete. Our bodies sort of lag behind and hold us down. And so while we have been saved, that's unchangeable, and there is no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have yet to be saved. It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's like an eschatological tension that we talked about last week. In fact, it's the same reason that in the previous section uh, of the chapter, we saw that we have been adopted as God's Son. But here, we eagerly await to be adopted as God's son, as if it hasn't happened. Now, that's not because it hasn't happened, but because it just hasn't been fully realized. Or to use the language of the passage there, it hasn't been revealed. This is sort of like getting a promotion at your workplace. I don't know where it is. Maybe you've been promoted to the vice president of Cool Vibes or something like that, right? And it's all hush, 
hush un until it's ready to be announced. And so you've been sitting on this thing for weeks. You know you're the next vice president. You've signed the contract. In fact, you've already even figured out who you're going to fire. But you can't move into your shiny new office until it's been announced. And so you find yourself at the water cooler with your co-workers and everyone's like, oh, do you, who do you reckon will be the new VP? Like, oh, I think it might be this guy. Oh, no, I think it'll be this woman. And you're standing there going, oh, no, I know, I know, I know, but I can't say anything. And so what happens is there's this agony within you as you just yearn for the thing to be revealed and then finally it's announced and the tension is relieved and you can say, behold, it is I, your new vice president. And you can finally start to live out the reality that you already knew was true. And that is what the Christian hope is. You have been waiting to be revealed and get on with the life that you know you already have. But in the meantime, we are groaning. We are agonizing in this tension. And it's not just the tension of news untold. We are physically suffering. Last night, I woke up at 2. I couldn't get back to sleep until 5. This has been happening a lot more regularly than I would like it to be. And I'm not saying that to whinge. I'm just saying there's something wrong with our bodies. Our bodies don't work. We're in bondage to corruption, just like the rest of creation. And what we hope for is release. And what Paul reminds us of in this section is though our present sufferings might fill our vision, they are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us when we are made to be like Jesus. In verse 22, Paul describes it as labor pains. Now, not from first-hand experience, but labor sucks. But you cannot find any mother and find them and ask them, was it worth it for their, to have their child and then them say no. They wanted it and they went through it because it was worth it. In fact, it paled in comparison to the joy of having their child in their arms. And so what does Paul tell us to do in verse 25? Well, he tells us to wait. He tells us to wait for our hope with patience. It is worth it. How do we do that? Well, he reminds us of what we know. Now, verse 28 to 30, they really deserve their own sermon series, but we're just going to have to make do with 300 words. What do we know? Well, look at, have, have a look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what's his purpose? For uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You see, there's that adoption language again. God's purpose is the gathering of sons who are just like his firstborn son, Jesus. And what he's saying here is that in his sovereign power, everything that happens to us in life, he will work toward our good. And by good, he doesn't mean here your material prosperity or your emotional happiness. He's talking about your eternal good, your Christ-likeness, your adoption as his son. And so what, no, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you confront, no matter what you suffer, no matter what you have to endure, you can be assured that somehow, it is achieving God's purpose of redemption for you. You see, the suffering of God is not arbitrary. We might not understand why we suffer as we do at the time. We might not even understand it until Jesus returns. But, but God is not thoughtless. He has perfectly crafted your life experience, both the good and the bad, to bring about your salvation. You know what the scary thing is? Unbelievers don't have that comfort. For those of us who are children, suffering is, it has a purpose. But for those who aren't children of God, suffering remains indiscriminate. 
It remains purposeless. They have no consolation. But for those of us who are justified, we do. We have supreme confidence. What does verse 30 say? And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice that last word there in the verse, glorified. It's past tense. And that's not a mistake of the translators. That's intentional. Paul is basically saying it is as good as done. And that is why we can endure suffering, because of God's unshakable purpose to bring us through the darkness and into the light of His glory. So how do we persevere through present suffering to future glory? Well, we wait in our hope. Because we know that God will bring us through. So, third, finally, what do we do? We stand assured in our victory. Verses 31 to 39. Now, properly speaking, these verses aren't the third of three points that Paul is making in chapter 8. He actually says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? And the, these things he's referring to really are all the implications of the gospel he's been unpacking ever since the beginning of chapter 5. Some people actually make the case to say it goes even further, through to chapter 4, 3, 2, and backwards. But whatever it is, this is his grand finale. He's just not picking up from the previous verse. He's picking up from everything he's said so far. It's the climax of where he's been building to. And so, like, if Paul was like a Pentecostal preacher, this is, the, which I don't think he ever would have been, right? But this is where he cues the musicians to kind of start the soft pad on the keyboard and make things all sound emotional, and, you know, like, they dim the lights, and everyone starts to kind of, ooh, wow, yeah, things are, things are really heating up in this sermon to the end, right? This is basically what Paul is doing. But he's not doing it with trippy, emotional, manipulative techniques. He's doing it with the truth. Because these verses don't need music to move us. What actually gives them their power is the undeniable truth that they declare to us as struggling believers. And what do they declare? Well, they declare to us two things. First of all, they declare to us that we are always vindicated. And then second, they declare to us that we are always victorious. And this is the assurance that the gospel gives us. So let's have a look at both of those together. First of all, we are always vindicated. Now I've got a question for you. It should be up on the screen here. Um, I'm about to read verses 31 to 34. And as I read them, I want you to think about this. I'll give you a moment to discuss it with those next to you. Which stage of the Christian life uh, verses 31 to 34 referring to. Let me read them to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So with the person next to you, which stage of the Christian life are these verses referring to?
not going to give you much more time than that. I am aware of the time. We are going to finish before the hour, so don't freak out, guys. I think what Paul is talking about here is the believer's final vindication on Judgment Day. That time when Jesus returns and we are found to be part of him and his people. Uh, and the assurance that Paul is seeking to impart to us here um, is that nothing can change the verdict of non, not guilty that God has already handed down to us. You can kind of see this as kind of things play out. We'll, we'll get there eventually, but have a look there at verse 31. I think this is his first and greatest reason. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, the only one whose opinion matters is God's, and he's in our corner. How do we know? Well, verse 32, he gave up his son for us. The thing to understand about God the Father and God the Son and their relationship is that there is no one and no thing higher in the affections of the Father than the Son. And so if He gave up His Son, that speaks volumes about how He is for us and not against us. And then having given up His own Son to justify us from our sin, why would He not then give us everything else, including and especially our vindication on Judgment Day. He's already given up the most precious thing he has. There's nothing else to woo him out of the verdict he's already given us, or to change it. The greatest sacrifice has already been made. The ruling has already been given. And so verse 33, Paul quite rightly calls out and he says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect at Judgment Day? Who's going to throw something at us and make it stick? He says, well, God's the judge, and he's the one that's already justified us. He's not going back on this. He then asks the same question again in verse 34. Who can condemn now? His answer, no one. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And now he sits at the right hand of the judge and he has his ear and he is constantly whispering in that ear, not this one, he's ours. Not this one, she's ours. And Paul's point really is very simple here. Having come this far in the judicial proceedings, there will be no revision of sentencing. No one can appeal the verdict. You were vindicated when you became a Christian, and therefore you will always be vindicated. How precious is that for those of us who struggle with sin and just worry that our lives, as we seek to follow God but can't do it, how precious is that knowing that nothing can change that verdict of not guilty? We are always vindicated. Second and last, we are always victorious. Let's have a look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You get the point, right? Two very long lists with every conceivable thing that you could suffer on earth from every conceivable agency... And then you've got Christ's love in verse 35, God's love in verse 39. In other words, the love that our Saviour God places and bestows upon us, saving us as His children. And He says, nothing that you can conceive of or invent or fall into or suffer, anything that you do to yourself, anything you have others do to you, 
can separate the love that God has thrown and bestowed upon you. You've heard that saying, once saved, always saved. Well, this is it. God's love is so constant and so strong that nothing can remove it or weaken it or trick it or change it. If you're a Christian, no matter what you suffer, whether it's physical, mental, existential, spiritual, God says to you that through Him who loved you, you will be completely victorious. Some translations say more than conquerors. That's just a bit weird. The word just means completely victorious. Think decimation, obliteration. It wasn't a close match. It was a landslide, a steamroll. We wiped the floor with it. We didn't break a sweat. It's that kind of victory. And why Paul can, and that's why also Paul can say that the sufferings of our present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Because in Christ, nothing can take us down. But as we finish, I just want you to notice very quickly what that victory is. Because the victory is not you prevailing over your present circumstances so that you can be all that you can be in this life. It's not even processing your suffering so that you can be unfazed enough to endure. It's not worldly triumph. It's not the absence of those sufferings. What does the quote say? It says, for your sake we have been killed all the day long. I'm sorry to break it to you, but your suffering as a Christian will not end in this life. So where's the victory? Well, the victory is that despite our never-ending present sufferings, when the dust settles and the final bell is called and Christ returns, we will still be found in the love of God, unseparated. And once you understand the nature of the victory that tether between you and the Lord Jesus cannot be severed, you're able to understand the nature of the assurance. Because your victory is not achieved by you. It is and always will be, verse 37, through Him who loved us. And let me assure you that the fact that it depends on God and on His unchanging nature and declaration of love for you, rather than your strength or your willpower, is perhaps the single greatest comfort the gospel can offer you. Because nothing, not even you and your weakness, not even you and your own sinfulness can sabotage the purpose of God to bring you home to glory. And so we stand assured in our victory because of the love that God has bestowed upon us in the gospel of His Son. There's nothing less for us to do except thank Him very briefly. Father, thank You that nothing this world can throw at us and ever separate us from your love. And I pray that that will give us assurance to persevere through our present sufferings until you bring us to glory. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.